0: Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt Library, and I'm very glad to see all of you. This is our first Writer's Live event of the new year. We're thrilled to host this reading for a very special friend of the Pratt Library, Dr. Kathleen Helen, um, and it's on the publication of her new poetry collection, The Girl Who Loved Mothra. Dr. Helen Kathleen is uh, Associate Professor of English at Coppin State University, where she teaches creative writing and journalism. She serves as a faculty advisor to the student newspaper and the literary journal, and in her spare time, she manages to find time to write poetry. <laughs> Kathleen's work has appeared in numerous literary publications. And her awards include the Washington Square Review, James Still, and Thomas Merton Prize, Poetry Prizes. She's a graduate of Carnegie Mellon University and is a contributing editor for the Baltimore Review. Kathleen, thank you for coming to the Pratt. We're delighted to have you here this evening. We're very honored to, that you chose to celebrate the publication of your new book here with us.
1: When I first realized that this book was going to be published, a colleague of mine, Paula, you know who I'm talking about. You'll know who I'm talking about. He said to me, what does it feel like to be one of the last people published in a dying industry? (laughs) And, of course, he's talking about print publications. And um, I think I answered something really cavalier, you know, quoting Keats or something, a thing of beauty is a joy forever. You know, I think that's what I said real flippantly. But quite frankly, I I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to this little book. I don't know what's going to happen to chapbooks. I don't know what's going to happen to any book, really. I don't know if uh, five to ten years from now, we're going to be reading everything we need to read out of machines in the palms of our hands. Um, I don't know what's going to happen to you and me, um, writers, artists in this room. I don't know how we're going to navigate the new technologies. Some of you younger folks are doing it very well, I can see. Um, but I really I really don't know. Um all I can say is that um we have to keep doing what we're doing no matter what the industry does behind us. I think we have to search and we have to write. We have to pursue these dreams that we have. I mean, for goodness sake, we're in this room dedicated to Edgar Allan Poe, who died on the streets of Baltimore, pursuing the furies of his own imagination. And I think we need to be schooled in that. I think we all need to pursue, no matter what the cost is. So that being said, I'm honored to be in this room reading tonight. And I want to Thank Judy Cooper for allowing me to come and read here. This is kind of a dream for me to be reading in the poll Room. Um, courageous Judy Cooper, who believes in local artists and is a staunch supporter of the literary arts in Baltimore. We are so lucky to have you at the Pratt. So I'm going to say in my best Japanese, arigato gozaimasu, Judy Cooper-san. And also I want to thank... Rosemary Liss, the young artist who designed the cover for The Girl Who Loved Mothra. It's beautiful. I couldn't have been happier. So, Rosemary-san, dom arigato. And arigato to all of you for coming here tonight. You didn't have to come on a Wednesday night to hear poetry being read. So I'm so thankful that you're here. Um, When I came to this country in 1956... I didn't speak a word of English. I came from Japan and uh, my mother, who was charged with the responsibility of teaching me how to speak English, barely spoke English herself. Not only did she not speak it, but there are actually sounds that she didn't hear in the language. It's an interesting phenomenon. If If the sound isn't in your language, if it isn't produced in your language, you don't hear it, it doesn't exist. And so this first poem I'm going to read from the collection came about when I was um, visiting my parents down in Florida. We were going through photo albums. That's one of the things we always do when we visit, go through photo albums, shoeboxes full of photos. And I saw this picture of myself sitting in my mother's lap, and she was reading this storybook to me. And I was turning the pages so quickly. The pages were like a blur in the photo. So this, um, this poem is for my mother, and it's called Translation. I sat in your lap, the words in mine, an illustrated book of a bear wedged in the tightness of meaning. You gave me candy to eat, as if sweetness could dissolve the worlds between us, the words, the syllables of loss with which you struggled, the language you taught yourself, teaching me. Only the grief was yours, stumbling from your mouth in a language you had not managed. L's instead of R's, lice instead of rice, or sink, you said, when you meant think. I giggled as I tumbled into speech, the mischief of a child translated. How to translate grief. How to speak it. Unheard. How to repeat. Your voice floated, disconnected, like a bubble in a cartoon strip. Sink, you said. Sink. One of the interesting things that I found out as I researched how many multiracial people there are in this country, according to the last census in 2009, um, there are somewhere between five and six million Americans who've identified themselves as multiracial. And interestingly enough, about 50% of them are under the age of 20. Um, There are an enormous number of challenges with with being of two races and you ask yourself questions like, you know, which race do I really belong to? Um, What culture do I want to, you know, identify with? And sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's more difficult, particularly if you're in a country that has been at war with the the other country or if the differences, the perceptions, the beliefs are so different from one another that, that they seem not to make sense at times and In Japan, for instance, which is a country that tries to live in accord with nature, it's very different when you come to the United States, which is a country that pretty much seeks to dominate nature and... It's in the practices you know, that my mother brought here that this, this collision of cultures became very apparent to me, one of which is the public bath. The Japanese revere the public bath. The idea of public nakedness is not something that the Japanese culture thinks is shameful. But if you bring that to the United States, it's, it's a different story. I wrote this poem um, for Ofuro, which means honorable bath, my mother's bath. Um, O is the honorific title given to the public bath or the bath. And uh, the poem is called Homage, My Mother's Bath. I did not think it strange to see her fallen breast, the nature that exhausted it, the dark nipple that expressed, or the scar where she told me I had been delivered. I did not think it wicked, though at ten Children soon assume the bath, a private thing. Public nakedness, a sin I did not sense. The kinko gives up dust, doesn't it? Like clouds release. Her beliefs had steeped in me like tea. The two of us inside each other, legs inside of legs, body of her influence. I loved it when she scrubbed. I shined. I loved it when shampooed the two great horns released all demons. How could they know? A pimple is a meanness, a sign of some pollution. I loved the pearls of soap diminishing in rinse, slippery and delicious. Japan is called the land of rice. And it's because it's, rice is one of those communal activities that you do, the cultivation and the harvesting takes a number of people. And the Japanese are a very homogenous people, and, and uh, rice is very important to their culture. Um, you can always tell how important something is it, through the language, the words. The Russians, for example, have about eight different words for snow. Um, and in the United States, how many words do we have for money? You know, money, cash, Benjamins, you know, you just name it. It goes on and on. Greenbacks could go on and on. The Japanese have two words for rice. Kome, which is the uh, uncooked grain, um, and Gohan, which means rice cooked. But Gohan also means meal. And everyone assumes that it's my mother who taught me how to cook rice, but it was actually my father. My father was an American serviceman. He was stationed in Japan after the war, and he lived there for eight years during the occupation. Um, he spoke the language. He, he became Japanese. He wore kimonos, and his favorite beer was kirin beer. He ate sushi. He was totally Japanese by the time those eight years were done. But my father taught me. And so this poem is from my father, and it's called Rice. Father said you must be mindful. Never hurry. Wash it twice. Once to get the milky rinse, and if the second wash runs clear, press your hand over the pebbled surface of the grain like starfish fingers in the sand. Run water just to cover. Like rock over paper. Paper over rock like his hand over mine in the pot, a monument of starfish over starfish in the sand. I understand. This is how we boil without burning, rattle and release in thickened paste that shoulders rim. The simmer seems a lifetime at the sound of the bell. At the sound of ourselves becoming, how quickly we eat. As I said, my father became Japanese. He spoke fluent uh, Japanese. And I wanted to incorporate in the reading some poems from um, a companion book to the book uh, that I have here today, The Girl Who Loved Mothra. This the book is called The Book of Surrender. And it's a book that's really dedicated to my mother and father and their experience after World War II. So the next couple of poems I'm going to read is from a companion book. Um, My father, because he spoke fluent uh, Japanese, was asked to be the secretary to the defense council for General Tojo after the war, during the war crimes. General Tojo was the the primary leader of the Japanese armed forces when they moved into Manchuria. He later became prime minister. After World War II, he was arrested, and during his uh, imprisonment, he tried to commit suicide, seppuku, which is the ritualized disemboweling. But he failed. He failed miserably. So he ended up being hung. My my father was uh, appointed as the translator to the secret the American consulate who. Um, who defended him at the Tojo trials. So the poem is called Tojo Eats the Stones of His Defeat. My mother's childlike hand has printed your dad on the back of the photo corresponding to the sepia tone figure of my father in the foreground looking down over wire rims, at a desk stacked with papers. Slightly to the right, she writes, the defense attorney, Mr. Blewett, and below him, the Japanese attorney, Dr. Kiyose, who later became prime minister. It is 1948. My father in the photo translates. Mr. Blewett reads from the pages of a document Not confession, not surrender. Tojo, stripped of medals at the top. A nation's uniform belief in earphones behind the stand of microphones flanked by anonymous guards. The eyes behind the round rimmed glasses piercing through the tint, as if to say, 3,000 years before you, we were cultivating silk three thousand years from now we will be crafting swords with blades turned out his smile reserved a smirk as if it were absurd the war is never over never lost over a wound so near the heart from then to now from shogunate to these on trial, from Tokyo's young lions to meiji, me. How does a country lose its face, become another place? How does my father translate generations in disgrace? The maps we know only as maps, China and Manchuria, the ABCD line, an alphabet of grief, In photos we complete when we look into the past, no defeat, repeat it, serve up shame like stones to eat for everyone left hungry. The war, the war, the war is never over. My mother was born in Hamamatsu, which is about 60 miles south of Tokyo. And Hamamatsu was bombed probably... Uh, maybe 12, a dozen times firebombed um, during the war she never really wanted to talk about it when I was a child she never spoke about the firebombings. bombings um, and when I was a, an adult I would go visit her and I would beg her to tell me the stories and she would resist telling me the stories and I would have to crawl into bed with her and curl up like a child and she would stroke my hair and she would begin those long nights of telling me what exactly had happened to her. Um, This is for my mother. Her name is Etsuko. My mother, Etsuko, has no eyelashes. No birds, these seven circling. She could see the pilot's eyes. The air was dry, windy, houses made of paper flashed in fire her kimono cut her hair when she ran her brow her lashes for days she bowed to fire sirens in the night where tokugawa built his castle ashes where the people once had shrines my father And mother met at the Tokyo Railway Station. My my, my, um, mother worked at the Red Cross Canteen, and um, they met at the railway station, which is an interesting structure in Japan because it was uh, the place where MacArthur established his headquarters during the occupation. And it was also the place where uh, the Japanese had gathered to hear uh, Hirohito's surrender, over loudspeakers. Um, The poem is called Occupation. If she refuses the colonel at the Red Cross canteen, the one with medals and elan, she knows what he wants. Not a wife. He has a wife. Roses only mean he will keep her. If she chooses the soldier, she meets at the station. It is for rice, a blanket in winter, a passport away. Tokyo's the rubble she stands on. On the rooftop of the railway station, the people wait. The ancient voice crackles through static, the voice through speakers, stilted, eccentric, hardly recognizable as voice. A million suns discharged in one atom of defeat. She measures thin tea in a house made out of paper, rows of wild August, the grasses in field as her world's occupied. Black market rice. We came on a plane. It was a very long plane ride. My dad wanted to shoo us out of Japan because the anti-American feeling was so strong that he was really worried for my sister and myself who were born there. So we got on a plane and we flew to the United States and my dad says that everybody was throwing up except me. I was so happy to be on flying. I was jumping from seat to seat and, and um, I called myself at that point the original child. Um The original child is the the name that the Japanese gave to the bombs that dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki um the you, the u s. called them "Little Boy and Fat Man." Little Boy dropped on Hiroshima and Fat man uh, dropped in Nagasaki. but the Japanese called the bomb the original child because they they knew that there was nothing like this ever before, and I saw myself as Nothing like anything Pennsylvania would have seen when I came. Original Child, 1956, 1. The Originator, Tokyo to Buam, the United States. Land and sky, the same wing gray, no differentiation on the rain-glazed surface of the runway, the air like atoms, heavy. We bored As we are born, the point of all departure. Round-eyed, bangs cut straight, please, she says, for paper cranes, her mouth in portals of a blossomed sayonara. They bring her cookies on a plate. They bring the milk her mother hates, a pillow book of rain. Two. Learning, losing, One, two, three. Counting on her fingers, ichi, ni, san, she means death. Or she who reads from wrong to left, the alphabet's confusion. The word that means a Japanese Ohio means good morning. The checkered farms appear out of turbulence like play. There are words she can't remember. Catch up, fork, surrender. No fusion in the child who can't pronounce. When I came to Pennsylvania, I was confronted with a culture that was so totally um, different. Um, and I had to bring with me all these things that were Japanese. And um, and, and it's, it's difficult because the, the people that I met had these stereotypes about who Japanese people were. It was after the war. Some people just absolutely hated Japanese people. And... Um, Then there were the stereotypes about um, the geisha that I lived with. Um, All Japanese women are geisha. We all need to walk three steps behind. We are servants. We um, are women of pleasure. This was all a part of the the stereotype. And I understood this on one end. I mean, I understood that this is what the expectation was in the West. But then I had also in my head all this stuff that my mother had taught me. My great-grandmother was geisha. She was Nihonbashi geisha, which Nihonbashi is this section in Tokyo where the very wealthy um, geisha live. And um, my mother would always say, your great-grandmother, she very, very, very high mistress, her keeper, very famous man. And I would say, "Who is it? who is it? And she would say, Cannot tell you, not tell you. you Um, And the geisha do have a kind of secret society. They don't tell. That's one of the great things about geisha. You know, it's like Las Vegas. Um. (laughs) But my mother says that, my great-grandma, she used to visit her in Tokyo all the time, and she said she was an amazing woman. She smoked American cigarettes, and she had an English bulldog. And my mother was always fascinated by that dog. She'd say, can you imagine, Kasi, a yellow dog? So it's my, my geisha great grandmother. The poem is called Geisha. And the poem is actually spoken through, through my mother's voice, not mine Geisha. All day she had not cried. Obasan was pleased. She showed her the drawer with the moon painted, drifting, the silver painted trees the drawer in the cabinet, lacquered and inlaid with mother of pearl, the drawer where she kept the fine chocolates. It was winter, and no one had chocolates. It was winter, and few had rice. She showed her the drawer and the moon off-center, the sweetness inside the dark. This is what you get, she said, when you are very good. Along with the geisha stereotype were all these stereotypes about the Japanese product, this cheap thing, little transistor radios, nothing from Japan was very good. And so I grew up hearing that. And the worst of it was... um, there were these terrible B-movies that came out, Godzilla, Godzilla versus Mothra, Godzilla versus, And there was just an endless string of them, and I would be so ashamed because they were so tacky. You could tell that Godzilla was this guy in a suit. You could tell that all the trains were like toy trains. It was awful. Um, So I'd go to the movies with my friends, and I'd shrink in that front row because I was so embarrassed of these movies. And it wasn't until later that I understood that Mothra, this mutant thing, this half butterfly, half moth, that had been a product of the atomic radiation, was really a symbol for uh, the Japanese people of, of resurrection, of, of becoming again. Uh, and the movies actually show that. I've watched them so many times since then. This is the um, girl who loved Mothra. A giant wing you know to be mechanical seems real as faces in the front row lit by the projection. Faces barely seen until the screen explodes with such artillery. Theater of war where weapons don't prevail. Toy tanks and helicopters dropping nets. U.S. artificial lightning useless in the fight against bad sequels. I bunker in the radiated glow, bug-eyed, caterpillar eyebrows inching over glasses pushed up to inspect the mutant wing. A shield, a wound protecting, a fan unfolding to adopt the offspring of this unloved world, this monstrous egg I loved, This prodigy of wind, big-hearted, aberration, hatching twins of you and me. As I got older and I began to love Mothra, I began to understand that you know, there were so many things. Apart from all the obstacles of being multiracial in this country, there are so many wonderful, wonderful things that happen too. You have two cultures to choose from. It's absolutely wonderful to have that kind of richness in your background. Um, one of the things that I loved about um, the Japanese culture is it's this idea of mindfulness and it comes from the Buddhist philosophies as well as from um, the Shinto indigenous religions. This idea of, of being present in the ordinary moment and that each moment should be lived. Um, the poem is called Chopsticks. What sustains you is beyond their lacquered reach. Twin bridges. The forced beak of your fingers is the bird you want to be pecking at the bowl of it, the empty dish. If on the plate the salmon's head points to the door, does that mean you will always be leaving? The places you enter are never the same the places you sat at the table. The body guides its appetites as wings clear the gate. You can take only so much between the tips, a pinch of grain, a sliver. Probably one of the most um, popular meditations is the tea ceremony in Japan. Cha-do. Cha means tea and do means the way. And it's this kind of ritualized meditation, I think, that makes the Japanese culture so unique and um, so peaceful sometimes. Um, The way of tea is more than um, a ceremony. It is a meditation and it is an approach to life, I think. The poem is called The Way of Tea. Coarse or finer substance matters. Attend to how the thistle and camellia picked that morning stand arranged. How early evening wind ruffles the scroll. How light infuses sorrow. Put the kettle on to sigh. Sprinkle water at the gate to let him know you are ready. Let him leave his sandals at the door. Bow. And when the door is softly closed, level powder, scoop the water to the bowl with your finger at the joint. Name the ladle, cup of moon, name the mouth, the taking, distinguish every sweetness, say, this is the only sweetness. Um, The last poem, I'm I'm at the last poem. The last poem I want to read to you today is The Wedding of the Foxes, which is, um, as I said, this time when it's raining, but the sun is shining at the same time. And the foxes in Japanese mythology are these very interesting creatures. They're like tricksters, Um, and they can disguise themselves. And this is one of my favorite poems in the collection, and I'm going to end with it. It's called The Wedding of the Foxes. If you happen as a child, on the wedding of the foxes, the slow, strange procession to the bridge of mist, the bride's wide approach on flute and stealthy drum, do not hide, run, if vulgar scent gives you away, if pines reveal what you are stealing in the pockets of your eyes. Never ask why this is that or why sometimes a hand becomes a paw reaching into forests. Run to where the sun bends into sudden colors, where your mother waits behind the sliding screen to see if it is you knocking answers in her fox's voice disguised as no or die. Answers as she hands you the dagger. eating, sparrows startling rice fields, or the snipe shrug, wagtail quail migrating. In autumn's dry voice leaves, the cicada cried, priest, the worm's small chief. I was born in the literary nun, new coolness in the river of intensity. I ate of macro clouds, refreshing. Listen to the pow as the paulina's leaves dropped, the sound of scarecrow pulling blocks, the first storm opening to the bottom of the dust. I was born in the moon of the seventh mile. Well, thank you.